Welcome to The Field, a podcast of targeted trainings for child welfare professionals. Over the next few weeks, my colleagues and I will be interviewing various local experts about topics that are pertinent to child welfare workers in Vermont. I'm Cassie Gillespie. And I'm Pete Cudney. And today we'll be talking with David O'Leary. Dave, do you want to introduce yourself and let folks know uh, where you're coming from and what your area of expertise is? Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Uh, my name is David O'Leary, and I'm a rostered psychotherapist in private practice in Shelburne, Vermont. I currently see a wide variety of patients' issues, uh, including everything from anxiety and depression to mood disorders, and uh, I also work with couples uh, and their relationships and families. And uh, my area of specialty is hoarding disorder and squalor-like conditions. Thanks. We're so excited to have you here today. Glad to be here. So we wanted to ask you a couple of questions about hoarding and squalor. In particular, hoarding and squalor as they pertain to child welfare, because that is the folks who are listening to our podcast. So to start off, would you mind giving us just the brief overview on the difference between hoarding and squalor? Absolutely. Hoarding disorder is a condition in which a person has difficulty discarding possessions, regardless of what their actual value is. Squalor is a state of being that occurs when people do not clean up after themselves, do not take care of their own bodies or the environment that they live in, and then find themselves living amidst um, filth uh, through uh, neglect, essentially. And how do you respond to those? Do you, do you treat them the same? Do you treat those situations differently? They're treated very differently. And a lot of it has to do with the acuity of the situation at hand. A lot of times with squalor, because of the degradating um, factors involved, it means that you can have uh, issues like animal feces or even up to human waste that might be involved. That means that you're probably going to have to lead with more proactive, practical uh, methods such as getting a team in to do a very deep clean to mitigate the serious health and safety concerns that are there. The same may not be said necessarily of hoarding disorder, where it may be a relatively clean environment, but it is cluttered. Something like that will take a longer approach and is going to involve more of a therapeutic approach initially with practical help likely later on in the process. So I know in your role now, you're working predominantly in private practice, but um, would you tell us a little bit about how you came to have this area of expertise and focus and what some of your work has been like with people experiencing hoarding and squalor? Absolutely. My, um, my academic interests are in uh, psychology, and I have a master's degree in clinical psychology from St. Michael's College in Colchester, Vermont. I also got into the world of housing advocacy back in the day when I left undergraduate, and I began to work at Women Helping Battered Women, now known as Steps to End Domestic Violence. So I found myself in the um, in that perfect spot between housing advocacy and um, the actual counseling profession where I was trying to help people through uh, that very difficult process of leaving after an abusive relationship and trying to get housing stabilized. After a few years doing that, I wanted to delve a little bit deeper into both housing and psychology. And when the opportunity presented itself with an opening of a housing retention specialist concentrating in hoarding disorder at Burlington Housing Authority in 2015, I jumped at the chance to get involved in that because it was a perfect combination of both of my interests. Dave, in 
child welfare, um, often family service workers are facing pretty strict timelines. I think you you know this. You, you interface with them from time to time. Mm-hmm. Um, and my understanding of hoarding, especially hoarding disorder, um, is that quick interventions aren't always the most effective or, or beneficial. Um, if you're thinking from the perspective of a, a child welfare worker and they need to have some kind of resolution as quickly as possible, um, what what advice would you be giving them in terms of how they're engaging with clients? What's the fastest they can expect without some kind of rebound? Yeah, could you speak to that all? Well, there is some statistical analysis that has been done. It says that 26 clinical sessions is about pretty much the the average amount of sessions that you would have with somebody with hoarding disorder where they would display changing behaviors that are likely to have a lasting effect throughout their lifetime. And that's really only the tip of the iceberg because by the time you've completed 26 sessions, you may have a structure Uh, a structured environment for the person to be able to work in, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be clipping along at a very fast pace at that point. The reality is that um, with a specific type of motivational interviewing, cognitive behavioral techniques, a lot of understanding in patients, and uh, uh, something of a mandate that homework is done outside of sessions, um, you're really just setting the foundation for what likely will be something of a struggle that the person will have throughout their life. But by changing some of these behaviors and learning new patterns of, of behavior and developing new skills for sorting techniques and making decisions, over time, the speed can increase. So if there are more imminent safety concerns and then there's also hoarding, is it, is it am I understanding it correctly that there may be quicker interventions to resolve the safety issues, but then the the underlying uh, pattern of hoarding is gonna be months, if not years, to address? I think that's a fair assessment. And I think that uh, my advice to anyone who's in that process, who is unsure of how to proceed and what would be the best thing that they could do for a family, would be to get as much information initially as possible. And that might mean up to in in getting um, an inspection report from a code enforcement official, a fire marshal, um, which is maybe seen as intrusive into the person's life. But what it does do is it gives quantifiable measurements of exactly what the issues are so that the um, DCF worker and the client can have a good conversation that's based around quantifiable measures rather than qualifying uh, measures that might be seen as more judgmental or um, might be too nebulous uh, in the sense that they're, they're not very direction focused. So I think what I'm hearing you say is that it's really important to be as specific, as objective as possible. Um, I think there are some tools out there. Are there any recommendations you have for family service workers about what they could be using when these cases come up? Absolutely. And the good news is that unlike other tools for psychological assessment of some kind, these are all free. They're available on the internet and they are applicable for Uh, clinicians in the field, uh, therapists, social workers, or home visitors, or anybody who might be working with somebody who has a hoarding disorder. The first one that I would point to, which is easily searched through Google, and is also now an app on uh, that you can get on most smartphones, uh, is the clutter image rating index, which is a series of pictures between one and nine that depict uh, depict various rooms at varying degrees of clutter. 
And um, those of us in the field who work with hoarding disorder will often use this as a frontline strategy to be able to do two things. The first thing that it does is it allows for uniform language when describing the situation that you're trying to tackle as you speak with your peers. That manages to keep it away from qualifying terms such as there's too much stuff, there's too much clutter, there's too much here. That can be quite confusing for everybody and one person's clutter is another person's neat house. Absolutely. So that's the first thing that it does. The second thing that it is beneficial for is um, trying to get a gauge on where your client's uh, interpretation and their um, their current understanding of their clutter is. So for example, and um, anyone who's listening to this might be taking out their phones right now and downloading the app, if you say that, um, oh, I think that my, my house is a three or a four out of nine in terms of clutter, and then you have a team who's working in there and they can all see that it's seven or eight, well, then you know you have a cognitive dissonance going on of some kind. There may be an executive functioning issue. So these kind, this information that you can glean from using this very simple free tool, um, you can learn quite a bit in the evaluation process. The second uh, piece of, um, the second tool that I would encourage people to use is the HOMES assessment. Again, a simple Google search, H-O-M-E-S assessment. Uh, there's a PDF form that will uh, that will pop up when you enter that into Google. It's a two-page sheet, and it has um, a list of uh, prescient issues that might be a play for somebody with hoarding disorder. And but also, so that would be some things like psychological readiness, or or, or is the person uh, cl- you know actively keeping them their own bodies clean? Um, but also, it can measure the amount of rooms, and it and it can go some way towards documenting your intentions for helping. And it's something of a roadmap that allows you to, at the very least, see what the situation is in the home, the person's level of readiness and awareness of the situation. And then, in turn, as you work with community members, you can give that piece of paper so that everyone is quite literally on the same page. Because confusion <laughs> confusion amongst workers in hoarding scenarios is very common, um, and it can be often something that leads to a lot of trouble down the road, but these tools help to mitigate that. That's great. So you're describing these tools, if I'm hearing you right, that they help to um, create more objective language. They maybe open dialogue between you and a client. They help to assess severity and, and the, the client's perspective. And so I'm guessing these are all parts of a larger larger kind of approach that you have or methodology. Yeah. Would you talk a little bit about how you approach these cases? Ideally, first of all, you're going to have a team structure of some kind. And the team, um, I think, can, has to be carefully considered. Uh, the per- whoever is the lead case manager or whoever is the person doing the gr- greatest amount of organization really has to think about who's involved in a hoarding scenario. For example, if you have a family member who wants to help out, that's a consideration. On the one hand, there's help that's available and ready. Um, there's a familiarity with the, with the client, um, which may be helpful trying to get more work done. But if the relationship is actually strained or if there are, if there's a history of not working well together, well, having that family member involved may be the worst thing you could do in that situation. Um, having in-home health workers, uh, V&A workers, um, if there's any housekeepers that, have, that would be willing to come in and help out, um, inspectors for if it's a Section 8 environment, um, the Section 8 staff themselves, who, them, who would be the ones perhaps um, keeping track of how compliant the person is with 
Section 8 rules. Um, fire marshals, code enforcement officials, doctors, uh, the social workers who work at doctors' offices, all of these people can be considered a part of the team. Um, but I would recommend that people are very careful in how they choose those people, especially if, if you get the sense that one of those people or more um, maybe has uh, some preconceived notions about hoarding, maybe coming in with something of a judgmental attitude, or is not willing to give the process the time that it deserves. What happens when you do rush the process? Rushing the process for uh, people who are trying to help and intervene can be uh, very frustrating and ultimately result in the person not getting help. Uh, for the person who has the hoarding disorder or is living in squalor, it can be downright traumatic in certain cases, especially if it's rushed in such a way that they, that they end up losing control of the situation and of the process. And often it leads to, leads to something of a reaction formation in which if the person feels especially that the things have been taken away from them, there may be a further effort to gain some of that stuff back to fill whatever void that and um, sense of betrayal that, that they will have felt in that situation. Subsequently, it means that other efforts to intervene may be jeopardized as a result of the trauma associated with the first attempt to help. And that's something that I've come across uh, in more than one occasion, is a fearfulness of what happened the first time happening again. And all of my words and assurances that it wouldn't happen don't necessarily cut it. Mm. Mm. So, so you're moving more slowly when you have the time to do that. And I imagine um, that each case may be slightly unique based on who the person is. Um, is there a process of trying to assess what, for this individual, what's underlying the, the, the patterns of hoarding or squalor? And, and if so, are there common underlying drivers? I think there are common underlying drivers such as social anxiety disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, um, um, certain mood disorders. Uh, um, certainly people who have experienced trauma can manifest in very different ways. But I think that... Um, there's no central underlying factor uh, for anybody. I think that where clinicians such as myself have an advantage is that we have the ability to be able to do certain assessments and, and to be able to ascertain what some of the underlying mental health um, issues might be. Not everybody who's involved in a hoarding case uh, who's taking the lead on it would necessarily have that capacity or training to be able to do it. Uh, an example would be uh, a case manager for um, an agency such as AgeWell who may have tons of experience in the field but, the, but when it comes to the assessment process it might be difficult to do that. Um, again, we come back to the team factor. If there is uh, a way in which they can connect the person to a therapist or they can connect to a psychologist who might be uh, willing to do some, some work on trying to find out what the underlying issues are, well, then you have more information at the end of that, hopefully, that can lead you to a specific type of intervention. And I'll give you an example of this. If I find out that somebody is actively um, undergoing psychosis or is prone to psychosis, 
Um, and then I have another person who um, has a history of trauma um, and has a very sentimental attachment to the same items. Um, I'm going to go about that in two very different ways. Um, the fact that one is one person is going to be questioning their very reality, I'm hesitant in that moment to even try an intervention until that's been addressed. However, the person who is firmly entrenched in reality but nevertheless has a traumatic response, um, that's someone that I'm, I'm, I'm going to be able to do work with uh, more readily uh, in that moment, as long as they're as long as they're ready to um, to commit to the process. Um, but knowing the underlying issue is a very important thing. So, for our listeners who are predominantly workers in the field um, and will not have the clinical background or even the time, you know, to do that type of assessment, and yet they've been out in the field and they've recognized that someone has a hoarding issue or a squalor issue, what do you recommend in terms of who should they contact? Who can they reach out to to build that team? I would say that um, for people who fall under the um, very low income category of uh, and who are also potentially um, housing insecure, um, especially if they were in the Section 8 program, public housing system, I would say that the housing retention team at Burlington Housing Authority um, is a good place to start going on their website. I also think that, um, you know, I'm always available to take a call. I frequently, um, I take several calls a week and have for the last four years from all over New England at this point uh, from people who have these issues. And sometimes it's a family member who's calling. Sometimes it's a social services worker or DCF worker who's looking for advice. Sometimes it's the person themselves. And um, I'd like to tell you that there's a there's a, a team of uh, clinicians out there in our community who's just r- trained and ready to go in this. That's not reality. Um, I, I've not been able to find dedicated um clinicians. Uh, there are a few people out there who uh, who have done this. I'm a little hesitant to say who they are because they don't openly advertise necessarily that they're, that they're doing it, and I don't want to overburden them with anything. Uh, but we do need more services uh, in our state in general and certainly in, in Chittenden County. Um, but I think that BHA's housing retention team, uh, myself, and um, I think that's it <laughs> right now that I can really think of. But we, we, have, we have a pretty large problem, but we don't have the amount of personnel required to meet the, the need. And is that the same as the hoarding task force? Is, is that the same group and the name has changed? Or? I'm glad you brought that up, that I forgot my own task force. But uh, it's, been a lo- it's been a long day so far. Uh, the hoarding task force in Chittenden County is the largest of its kind. It's been around for more than a decade at this point. And there, there is a somewhat limited uh, ability for us as a team, which is made up of various members of our community, uh, representatives of, from agencies. Uh, both of you have attended in the past. Yes. And uh, we are able to do some limited casework. Um, we're able to do some coordination of services simply because we have so many representatives of agencies at the table that if nothing else, we can often get people hooked up with a service that they might not have had in the past, which is very good. In trying to do the case management, however, for um, for an individual through the task force, it's it's quite difficult to, to do that. Um, often we look for a central key figure in that person's life already and try to make that person the comfortable with taking on something of the role of coordinating the effort 
so to speak. That person doesn't have to have all of the expertise in the world, but with some guidance uh, from myself or, um, uh, you know, just a step in the right direction, um, you can you can do some good with people if they're willing to receive the help. And, and how would people get in touch with the hoarding task force? Are you online? Or you... We have a Facebook page, Chittenden oh, okay. County Hoarding Task Force. Uh, you can drop a message. You can call me directly at my office. Um, and um, my website is um, uh, o'learytherapy.net. Um, so you can catch me on there. And right. and uh, you can always reach out. I'll always take a phone call. I, I have a big passion for this. And, you know, I know that there are upwards of 35,000 people in the state of Vermont who need the help. So if there's anyone out there who is willing to help a person out as best they can, I'm happy to give that person uh, my time and uh, hopefully a little bit of advice about how to do that. And I think I know the answer to this, but I just want to check in because we have um, 12 districts statewide and only one of them is Chittenden County. So for those folks in those other districts and other counties who don't have local task force or local clinicians that they're aware of, can they reach out to you just to um, touch base, pick your brain, see if you know of any local folks? Absolutely. I'm always happy to take a call. Um, I, you know, obviously I can't do full case reviews over the phone. I can do some very basic, um, I'll, I'll gather some basic information. And essentially what I'm looking for is, is certain patterns of behavior that a person might be looking, uh, um, running into that at least gives me something concrete to latch onto that I can say, okay, well, I can at least tell you that here's the things that won't work in this scenario based on what you've told me. Um, the other thing um, that I will always advocate for is for um, anyone who finds themselves in this scenario working with somebody who has hoarding disorder. So, for example, if a DCF worker is really does, doesn't know how to fix this problem, they you know want to keep the family together if at all possible, but they understand that there's very real concerns here that could jeopardize that. What I would say is go, go to the drawing board, find out who the natural supports are, find out what's potentially missing for supports in there. And if there is a single person in this entire thing, and that could be an intensive family-based services worker, somebody who is going to have more hands-on time with the family, anyone who is in a position to be in the home, more than likely that is the person who is best poised to be of, of service and of help. And I would say that there's four or five different things that it, that person in that position can do that's going to give them a, a head start on helping uh, on that. And I can I can list those if you'd like. Yeah, tell yeah, us. Oh, okay. So the first thing I would say is um, um, do as do as much learning as you can about hoarding disorder. And there's a few things I would say to stay away from. Don't watch TV shows um, about it. Uh, typically, it's, they're, they're not terribly helpful. There are some really good books out there that give concise information on how to help. I would say that the Buried in Treasures workshop is vital reading for anybody doing in-home work who comes across hoarding disorder. It's a relatively short read, and I would say that um, it's a very good resource. Um, that's the first thing is try to get some information about it. It's going to be a little less overwhelming when you find out some of the basic precepts around it. The second thing is to uh, concentrate on the person as much as possible when you first show up for a meeting. Make eye contact with them and don't let your eyes deviate left and right to the things that are in there. You'll get to see them eventually and they will be appreciated that you it will make it seem as if you're there for the person and not just because of the stuff. 
Um, try to quantify as much as possible instead of saying things like, well, there's, no, there's not enough space uh, between the door and the window. It's a quite a nebulous comment for somebody who struggled with hoarding disorder their entire life. Say that cord, code enforcement dictates that we have 36 inches of egress that are required. You put a measuring tape on that, every single time it's going to be the same. It's all, there's a uniformity to the measurement. Qualifying statements often come with baggage or can be perceived, be perceived to come with baggage. But not only that, if there's a high degree of resistance that the person is displaying, then they're going to be more likely to fight you on qualifying statements, which especially when you use words such as too much. What is too much? How do you measure that? Stick with the measurements. Can you give us an example of what a qualifying statement that someone might make with the best of intents that you're suggesting we should stay away from? Yeah, the qualifying statements can be quite innocuous and seemingly not that big of a deal. But saying something along the lines of, well, you got too much stuff here. That's a big one for starters. First of all, they kind of know that they do anyway. It's kind of a duh kind of moment. Um, But it is also open for debate. And the more debating that you're doing around the premise of, of why you're there, the less work that you're qualified, quality work that you're doing to address the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, a comment such as certainly um, trying to give comparisons to your life or people that you know, so saying something like, well, in my house, that's something that is another statement that totally turns the person off. They say, we're not talking about your house. We're not talking about your values. We're not talking about how you live your life. We're talking about how I live my life. So things like that, which people will sometimes say wouldn't be helpful. Uh, The fourth thing I would say is that once you start to, um, once you start to get the trust of somebody and you're looking for then the direction to help them in, um, try to divide rooms into zones rather than saying, okay, today we're going to tackle the living room. That can be a gargantuan task in some people's minds, the idea of tackling the entire room. Instead, draw an invisible line down the room and then the other side of the room so you create these four sections. And I would say a maximum of four zones per room. And say, well, today we're going to tackle zone one. Don't finish zone one until you're finished zone one. Move on to zone two. Celebrate the victories that you have in zone one. Zone one is a constant reminder of what can be done, what's possible, and move from zone to zone. The fifth and final thing that I would say is that when you finally come up with a methodology that works for the person, and that may be a keep box, a throwaway box, a donate box, um, that could be through lots and lots of homework um, that's expected, or it could be no homework at all where the person only works diligently when another person is there. Um, Whatever method that works for the person, encourage them to master that method and repeat Master, repeat, master, repeat. Bouncing around in different strategies is often confusing for people. Um, It's the practice that ultimately will make the greatest amount of uh, inroads in progress. So if it works once, it will work twice, it will work three times. So get a pattern and um, methodology that works for the person and encourage that and repeat. Cool. So helpful, Dave. I, I really appreciate you sharing your experience and your, your wisdom with us and you know, being generous with your time. Um, is there... 
Well, yeah, the other thing I was going to say is if you want more of Dave, in-person Dave, Mm -hmm. um, he just recently presented at the Developmental Trauma and Chronic Neglect Practicum. That's right. It was brilliant. It was well-received. We only had you for a half a day, but the feedback was a full day next year. So that's our plan. So thanks again for, for joining us for this. It's really helpful. It's been my pleasure, and thanks for having me. And David O'Leary is a local rostered psychotherapist in Shelburne, Vermont, who specializes in hoarding disorder and squalor. And we want to extend a big thank you. We're so glad to sit down and chat with you. Thanks, Dave. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you have any ideas about topics that you want us to cover or episodes that you're interested in hearing, shoot us a message. You can reach me by email at cassie.gillespie at uvm.edu or you can leave us a comment on the webpage where you downloaded this podcast. Welcome to the Field is produced by the Vermont Child Welfare Training Partnership and the State of Vermont. And a special thank you to Brickdrop for composing and recording our music. See you next time.